Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome back to the Community Library, a podcast and book club for anyone interested in stories and how and why we tell them. I'm your host, Angauri Rice. Well, 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 my friends, here we come to the end of another year. I have chosen not to do a whole spiel about what a dumpster fire of a year this has been because we all know it's not going to be all buttercups and daisies when the clock strikes midnight on the 31st and it's all like, oh my gosh, new year, no pandemic. Because if I've learned anything in this pandemic, it's that 2020 isn't the problem. (laughs) It's the anti-mask wearers who don't social distance. But I'm going to save more of my poignant commentary on this year for the end of the episode. And um, before we get there, you must endure me handing out 17 separate awards to 17 separate books that I liked this year. (laughs) Now, unlike normal people who do a top 10 or a top 5 or even those mystical beings who can determine their number one favorite book of the year... I like to give out different awards to different books, giving a few favourites a chance to shine in their eligible category. Here's how it's going to work. There are 17 categories, some new, some old, but all of them are positive. No bad vibes here, no worst books or most disappointing books. (laughs) Some of the books I mentioned may be eligible for multiple categories, but I have divvied them up so there are no double ups and everyone gets their 15 minutes of fame. No category is worth more than the others, except, of course, the enviable book that takes out the final category of Book of the Year. It's a big honor, and she gets a little extra time to shine. So, without further ado, here are the Community Library Book Awards for 2020. Number one, Biggest Surprise. The Impossible Fairy Tale by Han Yuju. Published in 2013. Translated from Korean by Janet Hong. I rated it four stars. Buzzwords include adult, fiction, literary, speculative. The first half of this novel follows two grade school girls, pretty and lucky Mia, and unremarkable and nameless child. The tension between these two girls and the rest of the class escalates to a horrible act of violence. The second half of the novel follows the author of the story of Mia and child, After waking from an intense dream, the author is confronted by one of the characters from her own story and must answer for her creative decisions. I found The Impossible Fairy Tale while searching for translated fiction on Scribd to read for my episode on reading translated fiction. Of course, it'll be linked in the show notes if you care to listen. Uh, And I chose this one specifically because it's translated from Korean and I had never read a Korean book before and I wanted to try something new. So I went into it knowing very little, (laughs) having just glanced at the synopsis and and thinking, yeah, that looks all right. Uh, But I was blown away by this book. The first half is haunting and weird with grotesque descriptions and lyrical prose. And then the second half discusses the ethics of creating art and how an author must take responsibility for their work. 
The Impossible Fairy Tale truly was a big surprise for me, but definitely a hidden gem. Number two, biggest accomplishment. Midnight Sun by Stephanie Meyer, published in 2020. I rated it one star. Buzzwords include YA, fiction, fantasy, vampires. Stephanie Meyer reimagines her best-selling YA novel Twilight through the eyes of teen vampire Edward Cullen. As Edward falls in love with the mysterious human Bella, he grapples with the hard truth that he is endangering her life. I know I said no negative reviews, good vibes only, um, but this (laughs) truly was my biggest accomplishment this year. And look, I know I did it to myself. I I know that. But, But here's my justification. Stephanie Meyer released Midnight Sun at the height of Melbourne's very bad second wave of COVID. So we all went into very strict lockdown while the rest of Australia opened up with no problems at all. So I was in a very emotionally vulnerable state when I decided to rewatch all the Twilight movies with my friends via Netflix party and then reread the first book and even make a podcast episode about the first book and then finally borrow my friend's brand new copy of Midnight Sun and read it. (laughs) Well, you got to do what you got to do. So Midnight Sun was a struggle for me to get through for a few reasons. Um, To begin with, it's retelling a story I've already read multiple times and And not much happens in this story in the first place, so there was no element of surprise. For another thing, being inside Edward's head was actually insufferable. He was so moody and selfish and just convinced that, like, nobody understood him. It was torturous, absolutely torturous to read from his perspective. And the third thing that made this book a slog to get through and the main thing that makes me so proud that I finished it was that it was 756 pages. Yes, my friends, 756 pages of Edward's moody musings. I am very proud of myself for reading every last page. It truly was my biggest accomplishment this year. Even now, three months later, I could not tell you if this book was my destruction or my salvation. We may never know. Number three, most thought-provoking. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, published in 2010. I rated it four stars. Buzzwords include adult, nonfiction, science, ethics. Rebecca Skloot investigates the untold story of Henrietta Lacks, the woman whose cells were the first human cells to grow in culture. The HeLa cells, as they are called, have become one of the most important tools in medicine, helping develop vaccines and gene mapping. But until recently, Henrietta Lacks' story remained unknown. So The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks takes the honour of most thought-provoking book because the story itself is just so fascinating. Henrietta Lacks was a poor black woman living in the 1950s and her cells were taken from her unknowingly. And then once they were discovered to be this important scientific tool, they were sold and companies made big bucks from it. But Henrietta Lacks had no idea and her family never saw any of the profits. So already this story of Henrietta Lacks brings up a number of questions surrounding race and gender and science and ethics. But the thing about this book that really got me thinking was the way that Henrietta Lacks' story was told. 
How does one ethically write a nonfiction biography about a family to whom you have no relation? Rebecca Skloot doesn't talk about herself much in this book at all. She doesn't talk about her background or even why or how she won the trust of the Lacks family, enough for them to share with her important documents and treasured memories. I think the author's self-insertion into a nonfiction story is a very difficult balance to strike. On the one hand, it would have been out of place and ignorant for Skloot's story to eclipse Henrietta Lax's. On the other hand, though, I think it must be acknowledged that Skloot's story influences how she represents the Lax's story. She cannot do it objectively. I felt this was something that was missing from The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, a discussion on how to truthfully and ethically tell someone else's story while also acknowledging whatever biases and interpretations you may bring to it. And this is something I've continued to think about this year as I've worked on a few creative projects concerned with representing true stories. I helped my mum research for a podcast she produced about the history of Australian theatre. I'll link that in the show notes as well. And more recently, I made a podcast episode about Marilyn Monroe. And in researching and writing for both of these projects, I had to consider what preconceived interpretations I brought to the material, whether they were negative or positive. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks isn't about the ethics of writing nonfiction. I'm sure there are other books out there that are about that specific topic. Um, but it's that particular feature of its creation that got me thinking this year. Of course, I would recommend this book to anyone searching for a discussion on the ethics of science and how it intersects with race, gender, and social politics. Number four, new favorite fictional character. Baby from Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas, published in 2020. I rated it four stars. Buzzwords include YA, fiction, speculative, gothic. Running from her troubled past, 18-year-old Inez is offered a place at the elusive and prestigious college Catherine House. We follow Inez over her three years at Catherine as she gets sucked into the world of experimental science and haunting rituals and discovers dark secrets about Catherine's elite. I didn't know what to expect going into this novel. I had heard people say it was weird and readers seemed to either love it or hate it. I really loved it. Catherine House is a modern gothic novel everything you could want out of an updated version of Jane Eyre. It's creepy, it's unsettling, it's subtle, and the vibes are immaculate. <laughs> Very dark academia, cozy witch, exactly what I needed to read when I was experiencing October in America this year. My favorite character from this book was not our main character, Inez, but rather her roommate, Baby. I listened to the audiobook and the narrator did such a fantastic job of characterizing Baby through her voice. Baby is a quiet, introverted hard worker who has very, very creepy vibes about her, but she's still endearing in a very strange way. Everything this character said or did was so either weird or sad that I couldn't help being both fascinated by her and also pitying her. Even though she was a side character, she was so vividly painted and really made a lasting impression on me. 
Number five, favorite cover. A Song Below Water by Bethany C. Morrow, published in 2020. I rated it three stars. Buzzwords include YA, fiction, fantasy, contemporary, mermaids. Best friends Tavia and Effie are both keeping secrets. Tavia is a siren, a dangerous thing to be in a society that views sirens as manipulative and threatening. And Effie's past is coming back to haunt her. Through the lens of mythology and fantasy, this contemporary novel explores how society treats women of colour. There were some things I liked about this book. The discussions on race and teenagehood and social media were very poignant. I loved the sisterly bond between Tavia and Effie. Unfortunately, though, I didn't enjoy this book as much as I thought I would. I felt the pacing was off and the balance between the magical elements and the real world wasn't quite right. I was confused a lot of the time because I think important world-building elements were left out. Also, Tavia and Effie's perspective sounded so similar, I often couldn't remember who was talking or whose perspective I was reading from. But nevertheless, I love the cover. (laughs) The bubbles, the seaweed, the hair, the blue eyeliner. Oh my god, the mermaid vibes. Absolutely in love. I only wish I had liked the book more. And tied in first place for favorite cover is Sex and Lies by Leila Slimani, published in 2017, translated from French by Sophie Lewis. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, nonfiction, essays, social issues. Slimani collates personal essays and interviews with Moroccan women about love, desire, and sexual identity. What's this, you say? A second winner for best cover? I know, I know, I said there was only going to be one winner per category, but this is my podcast, I can do what I want. I wanted to include this in the tie for first place because this cover is a very different style to A Song Below Water, but I still think it's absolutely divine. I love the simplicity of it. I think it really reflects the contents of the book. It's a simple design. But the photograph represents a juxtaposition of generations, and this is something that's discussed in the book. And on my computer, the cover looks a little more orange, but it is, in fact, a beautiful blush pink, which is a color I just simply adore. By the way, I will have pictures of both of these covers linked in the show notes for you to look at, or you can just Google them yourself. (laughs) Number six, favorite YA fiction. Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo, published in 2020. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include YA, fiction, contemporary, sisters. We follow half-sisters Camino, living in the Dominican Republic, and Yahaira, living in New York City. They don't know of each other's existence until their father dies in a plane crash and their family's secrets are revealed. I did a whole podcast episode on this book with my friend Bonnie and we just gushed about how much we loved it the whole time. So if you would like my full thoughts on this book, then the episode will be linked for you. But briefly, I loved how this book explores connection to place and home. For these two half-sisters, connection to home means something very different. Yahira's family is from the Dominican Republic, so she feels a connection to that place, but she's grown up in New York all her life. Camino, meanwhile, has grown up in the Dominican Republic her whole life and feels the urge to go to the States to pursue a career. 
Acevedo illustrates the tensions between place and home with such a delicacy and a nuance that is really just divine. This book is also written in verse, and I think it's a very fitting way to express this story about grief and sisterhood. It is a sad book because it talks a lot about grief, but it's also quite triumphant in that these two girls end up forming a special bond that they would have otherwise not found. Much like Acevedo's debut novel, The Poet X, I think Clap When You Land is a perfectly well-rounded YA novel that tackles big issues, but is still an accessible read. Number seven, favorite adult fiction. Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Published in 2013. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, fiction, literary. Ifemelu and Obinze are young lovers who grew up together in Nigeria, but must part ways when Ifemelu moves to America for university. Confronted with a new country and a new culture, she is forced to grapple with what it means to be black in America. I had very high expectations for this book, and boy, did it deliver. <laughs> I've talked about this one a few times on the podcast before, so I'll keep it brief. But what I liked about Americana was that it was such a character-driven novel, and I'm a sucker for that. There's not much plot to it, but it really doesn't matter because our characters are so alive and vivid. Ifemelu felt like such a real person to me, I was immediately invested in her story. And her character arc is so much about her identity. When Ifemelu leaves Nigeria and comes to America, her blackness is politicized and her identity becomes something that must be explained. I loved this discussion of what it means to be an outlander in a country that has little to no prior understanding of where you come from. But aside from the characters, the thing that made this book very special and impactful for me um, was its discussion of American culture. Adichie really analyzes all aspects of American culture and how it's unique. Uh, things like the accent, turns of phrase, the way some topics are freely discussed and others are swept under the carpet. I think this is honestly the most truthful representation and analysis of American culture I've ever read. Number eight, favorite translated fiction. 100 Years of Solitude by Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. Published in 1967. Translated from Spanish by Gregory Rabassa. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, fiction, literary, magical realism. An epic literary tale that chronicles the generations of the Buendia family, from the establishing of their town Macondo to its destruction. Due to my translated fiction podcast episode series this year, I read quite a number of fantastic translated novels, uh, but the one that trumps them all is none other than the magical realism classic 100 Years of Solitude. Again, if you'd like to hear my in-depth thoughts on this book, there are not one, but two episodes on it, which I will, of course, link in the show notes for you. But the short and the long of it is that I thought this book was brilliant. I was skeptical going in, I must admit. <laughs> I was wary of it being an epic story written by a man in the 1960s. I was worried that it would be completely about toxic men doing toxic things and getting away with it because, you know, patriarchy and male lineage. But I found this book is actually a critique of that. 100 Years of Solitude is 
a difficult book to describe because it's kind of about everything, but also nothing happens. <laughs> it's about history repeating itself. It's about younger generations not listening and older generations forgetting and therefore making the same mistakes over and over again. It's about the cyclical nature of time, how wars begin and end and begin again, how children must bear the burden of their names and how everything that is prosperous must eventually decay. It's also about gentrification and colonization and genocide. It's an incredibly rewarding book to read and it just kind of washes over you like a fever dream. (laughs) At the end, I wasn't quite sure what was real or what I might have misinterpreted or imagined. And of course, the writing is stunning. It was a book that defined the genre of magical realism and you can see why. The prose is lyrical without being annoying and dotted with the most bizarre and beautiful visions of magic and fantasy blended with the harsh reality of the town of Macondo. Don't be intimidated by the page count or the Nobel Prize. This book is a treasure and will let you escape into it. Number nine, favorite Australian book. Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko, published in 2018. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, fiction, contemporary. When wisecracking 20-something-year-old Kerry Salter returns to her hometown to say goodbye to her dying grandpa, she must reconnect with the dysfunctional family she has tried so hard to forget. I read Too Much Lip for my Reading Australian Literature episode, and I had never read from Melissa Lukashenko before, but she is a very well-known and prolific Australian writer, and Too Much Lip won the Miles Franklin Award a couple of years ago, which is a very prestigious Australian literary award. I really enjoyed this book. It had so many elements that I love. It's a character-driven story about a dysfunctional family, (laughs) which I always love, and it follows each member of the family trying to connect and extend forgiveness where trust has been broken. It's a very well-balanced book as well. Uh, It talks about intergenerational trauma and grief, but it also has a really cute romance storyline and is quite darkly funny at times. The writing style is also very unique, and that's really what made it stand out for me. Lukashenko writes in third person, but with a distinct style of familiarity, 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 (laughs) being familiar, you know, you get what I mean. Um, So she writes with that, so you feel very close to the characters, even though it's in third person. The writing style mimics Carrie's speech patterns, and so it immediately draws you in and connects you with her. This book is also a very Australian story. Uh, It talks about the stolen generations and the Salter family's connection to their land and culture. The descriptions of the Australian landscape are exquisite, and um, it was just a really beautiful book to read about Australia while I was in America. Number 10, favorite classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, published in 1937. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, fiction, classic, black American classic. 
When I was looking at the nominees for this particular category, I was quite fascinated to see that I had read a very low number of classics this year, a very low number of books published before the year 1900, which is what I would typically consider a classic. Also, I think a big factor in me not reading many classics this year is that I finished reading all the Jane Austens. <laughs> I don't have any more to read. <laughs> so uh, that's a shame. Um, but their eyes were watching God. Sorry, back to this. It was not what I was expecting. Um, the story takes you on a winding path through memory and sleepy towns and tumultuous marriages. Our hero is Janie Crawford, and she's a character that I struggled to connect with at first, uh, but I really came to love her. We watch her survive hardship and cultivate a quiet strength within herself. And the climax of this book was so devastating, but so clever at the same time. I loved how it's about a woman finding her agency and, and becoming her own person and making decisions in her life in any way that she can. And the ending oh, really broke my heart. It really did. Um, but my dad said that he found it oddly triumphant in a way. Uh, my sister talks about how she enjoys books and movies that are happy sad. <laughs> but I would warn any reader that their eyes were watching God is more sad happy. Worth the tears, though. Number 11. Nonfiction. Aoadi on Top by Richard Aoadi. Published in 2019. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, nonfiction, comedy, literary criticism. <laughs> in this bizarre and hilarious book, British comedian Richard Aoadi offers a critical analysis of the 2003 film View from the Top, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. I honestly don't know how to explain this book. <laughs> On the surface, it's a satirical analysis of a bad movie from 2003, but Aowadi also goes deeper than that. You know, it's, it's part memoir with him offering memories from his childhood or anecdotes from his career. It's also part social commentary with Aowadi tackling some of the bigger issues such as the Harvey Weinstein scandal and what we do when the creator of something we love turns out to be a terrible person. This book is weird, hysterical, <laughs> and very short. And I've never read anything like it before in my life, hence why it takes out favorite nonfiction this year. <laughs> Number 12. Favorite short story collection, poetry collection, or play. Throat by Ellen Van Nierven. Published in 2020. I rated it four stars. Buzzwords include adult, poetry, memoir, social issues. This dynamic poetry collection explores themes of love, language, and land. Van Nierven, quote, shines a light on Australia's unreconciled past and precarious present with humour and heart, end quote. This year, I read a dismally low number of short stories, poetry, and plays. <laughs> I don't think I read any plays at all, actually. But right towards the end of this year, I bought myself a present at my local bookstore in celebration of surviving two weeks in hotel quarantine. And that present was this poetry collection, Throat by Ellen Van Nieven. This is their second and most recent poetry collection. I am not very well versed, ha, 
get it, in the world of poetry, but I really enjoy Van Nieuwen's style. They divided the poems into sections, uh, roughly based on theme. So there are poems about race, about queerness, about memories, about Australia, uh, and of course, how all these things intersect and cross over. I don't like poetry that is too obvious, but I also don't like poetry that is too vague. My favorite poems of this collection struck that balance perfectly, with lyrical prose that hid deeper meanings, but not so much that I didn't understand what Van Nieuwen was trying to say. I also really loved the incorporation of contemporary terminology, phrases, and images into this lyrical prose um, that felt timeless. I really like that juxtaposition of feeling connected to an old uh, art form and craft, while also finding the beauty and poetry in contemporary things, things that are seen as mundane and ugly and unromantic, like, I don't know, technology. This is also a great Aussie read if you are looking for some Australian poetry. Number 13. Favourite reread. The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, published in 2008. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include YA, fiction, dystopian, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic. In a post-apocalyptic North America, 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen is forced to fight 23 other teenage champions to the death in the annual live television event called The Hunger Games. Rereading The Hunger Games in February when coronavirus was just starting to heat up was not the best decision I've ever made. So if that's the case though, why has it taken out Top Spot as my favourite reread of the year? Because this series is actually brilliant, and I don't understand how I forgot that. Unlike Harry Potter, my love of The Hunger Games in my tweens did not continue into my teenage years and adulthood, and I'm not sure why. It offers fantastic social commentary on capitalism, voyeurism, entertainment, the environment, and it's all heralded by an incredible female protagonist who <laughs> truly is not like other girls. <laughs> she comes off as cold and unemotional because she is so intent on surviving. I also watched a great video this year uh, by one of my favorite YouTubers, Lena Norms, who also reread The Hunger Games in the middle of lockdown and offered a great analysis of it. I'll link that video in the show notes, it's worth a watch. I think The Hunger Games was in some ways the worst thing to read while facing the threat of a pandemic, but also in some ways the best thing. It's a cautionary tale and it made me think a lot about the world's response to the pandemic in the months after I read it. Number 14. Oh, we're getting close to the end, guys. Favorite 2020 release. Black Girl Unlimited by Echo Brown, published in 2020. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include YA, narrative nonfiction, memoir, fantasy. In this magical reimagining of the author's adolescence, we follow Echo Brown, a wizard living on the east side, where the apartments are small and parents suffer from drug addiction. When Echo transfers to a rich school on the west side, she must reconcile her old life with her new one. I was surprised by the high number of YA contemporary fiction I read that was released in 2020. 
I don't consider myself to be a reader who keeps on top of everything that's come out in YA fiction and reads it, but that's what I appeared to do this year. And I'm so glad that I read Black Girl Unlimited and I wish more people read it. It's so good. It's a genre-bending narrative nonfiction that blends memoir with fantasy into an incredible poetic hybrid. <laughs> Brown uses beautiful narrative devices to frame real-life traumatic events in a mystical way, which made the reading experience so intriguing and exciting. It's a coming-of-age story that incorporates discussions on sexuality, trauma, poverty, race, and class. And it's hard to define what it is exactly, but the whole reading experience is just unique and special. Brown transports you into a world that looks so much like our own, but through the eyes of Echo is filled with magic. And the effect is that these traumatic events of the book are made easier to read about through this fantastical lens, but no less impactful. Number 15. Favourite Pandemic Read Outlander by Diana Gabaldon Published in 1991. I rated it three stars. Buzzwords include adult, fiction, historical, fantasy, romance. In 1945, Claire Randall is in Scotland with her husband until she walks through an ancient circle of stones and is suddenly transported back in time to Scotland in 1743. Now look, I hope that favourite pandemic read is not going to be another category this time next year, but I thought it was important to include this year because I'm sure many people have acquired uh, what I'm calling pandemic purchases this year. Your pandemic purchase might have been an exercise bike, or a Nintendo Switch, or maybe a nice dress that you couldn't wear anywhere. <laughs> My pandemic purchase, I mean amongst other things, was the first four books in the acclaimed historical fiction fantasy series Outlander. Now, this is very out of character for me, <laughs> because uh, number one, I typically don't like historical fiction. And number two, I typically don't like adult fantasy. And yet, <laughs> watching the TV show adaptation of Outlander over my mum's shoulder intrigued me enough to buy a box set of the first four books for 40 bucks on Gumtree. <laughs> Before even reading the first one and determining whether I wanted to continue with the series or not. When I picked it up, I expected to love-hate it. I expected it to be... A trashy read that was a nice escape that just kept me going for a while because the book is like 800 pages long or something. Surprisingly though, <laughs> I enjoyed it more than I thought I would and it was kind of the perfect thing to read at the height of Melbourne's stage 4 lockdown. There are some things in this book that haven't aged well. The relationship, one could say, is a little bit toxic. There are some mm, interesting elements there. It's quite sexually explicit and violent, which is not always my cup of tea. However, I just got sucked into the world of clans and kilts, and it was the perfect escape from the stress of the real world. 
I liked the romance most of the time. <laughs> the writing wasn't bad and there was enough drama and action to keep me interested. So it's a surprise to me too that it takes out the winner of favorite pandemic read. Number 16, favorite new author. Rick Riordan, author of the acclaimed Percy Jackson series. You guys, I have a confession to make. I am obsessed with the Heroes of Olympus series by Rick Riordan. <laughs> this is the second series in the Percy Jackson universe, and it takes place a year after the events of the last book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. If you've listened to the podcast before, you may know that my friend Harry and I have done four episodes on the Percy Jackson series. We've done one for each of the first two books in the series and one for each of the movie adaptations. Of course, all these episodes will be linked down below. They're pretty funny if I do say so myself and worth a listen. And so ever since we did those episodes together, Harry has been bugging me to read The Lost Hero, which is the first book in the second series. <laughs> And so while I was stuck in hotel quarantine in Sydney, I finally did it. And God, it lifted my mood so much. <laughs> this series was written quite a few years after the first PJ series, maybe like five years or something. And you can tell that Rick Riordan has implemented more diversity and made an effort to include discussions of some more serious topics to appeal to an older and more diverse audience. The books are always funny and dramatic. Uh, he always, you know, hits the nail on the head there. Um, but they're also heartwarming because Riordan doesn't shy away from romance plot lines or themes of grief and self-doubt. And look, for a middle grade slash YA fantasy series, Rick Riordan didn't have to go this hard, but he did. He did that for us. I am just obsessed with it. And also I follow him on Twitter and he's like so wholesome. It's brilliant. I am unabashedly excited for the new Percy Jackson TV series on Disney Plus, And I'm currently halfway through the second book in the Heroes of Olympus series, The Son of Neptune. <laughs> I might bring Harry back to do more Percy Jackson episodes when the series comes out. I don't know. We'll see. Let me know if you want that. Number 17, here we go guys, book of the year. Drumroll please. Being Here, The Life of Paula Mordezon Becker by Marie Dariusek, published in 2017. I rated it five stars. Buzzwords include adult, narrative nonfiction, biography, art. In this narrative nonfiction book, Daria Sek tells the story of early 20th century painter Paula Mordezon Becker, the first female artist to paint herself not only naked, but also pregnant. Here we go, guys. Biggest honor of them all, book of the year. Let me explain my journey with this book. During stage four lockdown, my dad very kindly bought my sister and I each a present. My sister, who recently acquired a second-hand record player, was given the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on vinyl, and I was given this book on Paula Mordezon Becker's life. My dad had sought out this book and read it after seeing some of Paula Mordezon Becker's work in Germany and becoming interested in her life. I read this book quite late in the year, 
but even so, it has been the most influential, hence why it is taking out Top Spot as Book of the Year. What I love about being here is that it's a narrative nonfiction that perfectly strikes the balance between the subject and the creator's own investment in telling the subject's story. As I mentioned before, this was something I feel that Rebecca Skloot's book lacked. Being Here talks about Paula as an artist and her career, but also as a whole discusses an artist's legacy, how women are represented in art, how motherhood is represented in art, and how Paula's simple quote-unquote being there, living in the time she was living and creating the art she was creating, was a political and provocative statement. Paula's story inspired me to write songs and poetry about her, and even to paint a self-portrait, something I haven't done in a really long time. All industries have been hit hard by the pandemic, whether that's been because of a forced shutdown like theatre, museums, sports, or an increased demand like hospitals and homeless shelters. The arts industry in particular, with some aspects of it already in a vulnerable state, like live theatre, has taken a really big hit. In the rebuilding process, politicians, economists, investors, legislators, people with the big bucks and the big power are all asking the same question. Why save it? Why save the arts? This year, I found the answer all around me. When I was locked inside my house and couldn't go outside, art took me around the world. When I couldn't connect with people in person, art gave me people to connect with. When I couldn't go traveling or go to an art gallery, I could read a book about a young female artist traveling around Europe. Art and books specifically for me have been a refuge this year, an escape, a safe haven. But they've also been a means to process and understand what's been happening in the world around me. And art is what is remembered in the end. Art is our legacy. Shakespeare is remembered. Marilyn Monroe is remembered. Harry Potter is remembered. And I know that in years to come, when I talk about this pandemic, I might not remember all the stats and the case numbers, but I will remember the art that got me through and the art that came out of it. Whether it was TikTok dances with my family, or isolation movie nights, or sitting in the backyard in the first sun after our winter lockdown, reading about Paula Mordezon Becker's life. That is what I will remember. Thank you so much for listening to what is my last episode of the year, and the last episode of season three. I hope you have enjoyed this season as much as I have. There have been ups, there have been downs, there have been lockdowns. <laughs> but most importantly, there have been good books. By the time you're listening to this, I will be on holiday. Yes, my friends, I will be drinking gin and tonic on the beach while letting my pale vampire skin soak up the summer sun. I am very excited. However, do not worry, the podcast will be back with season four on the 17th of January. Mark it in your calendars, folks, the 17th. That's exactly a month away. Until then, I will, of course, be on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library, sharing all of my beach reads and probably very sunburnt selfies. 
On a more sincere note, I cannot express how much this podcast has meant to me this year. It has really been a saving grace in times of distress, and it's pushed me to think more critically and be more understanding. This podcast is really such a joy in my life. I work hard on it and, and I'm really proud of it. And most of all, I am just overwhelmed and humbled by you, the listeners, for taking the time out of your week to listen to me ramble away at you. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I've certainly enjoyed chatting away at my microphone and sharing my thoughts with you all. Until next year, happy holidays and happy reading. Bye.